0: Antagonism between average people and the elites is such an endemic feature of life today that we maybe assume that it was always there or that it's just natural to government. And we are perhaps most of us condemned to be peasants and to be frustrated peasants at that, and ne'er the peasants and the elite shall meet. Welcome back to Brief History of Power. This is our final episode in the colonial series or earliest settlement series in the myth of America. When we're done with this, we'll take a break for a little while from the ongoing story of the birth of our country and go into some other things. When we come back to this story, we will look at the War of Independence and all the issues, events, and people surrounding it that made us who we are today and got us where we are today. Today we're talking and This is a capstone or a keystone for a reason. We're talking about the founding of the proprietary colony of Pennsylvania, not in fact named after William Penn, the framer of the government of the colony of Pennsylvania, but after his father. And that's the place we're gonna start because what you're gonna find in Pennsylvania is that antagonism existed to a very large degree there, perhaps more so than any other colony thereby foreshadowing our own time, but that that antagonism is not necessary. So we will end the episode by figuring out what another option might have been, even where there is a very clear elite governing class in a different colony. Pennsylvania is a place that could not have existed without the English civil wars, which take place between roughly 1640 and 1660 in the mother country, And there are also wars in Scotland and Ireland and Wales into the Bargain, sometimes called the Wars of the Three Kingdoms these days by historians. Those wars create a series of ups and downs for all kinds of groups. The two, let's say, groups that we're interested in today are on the one hand, naval officers, and on the other, the Quakers Naval officers were interested in because the royal cause has so few of them and such a poor naval showing in the civil wars. But one of the outstanding figures who does help the royalist cause and therefore will be rewarded for it after his death is William Penn the Elder or William Penn Senior. He is a rather normal English gentleman of his time and an adherent of the Church of England, the established church, just the church, right? If you're English, And his relationship to Charles II after the Restoration is one of great loyalty and fealty, and Charles wants to reward the family not only for William Penn Sr.' service, but also for debts that he personally owes the family incurred in getting back to his throne. Because of that, William Penn, the younger, or sometimes called the framer in Pennsylvania history, is given something that embarrasses him, which is an entire charter for an entire colony called Pennsylvania, named so by the king himself. It means Penn's woods. It's all entirely forested naturally. But William Penn Jr. is consistently embarrassed because everyone's going to think that he named it for himself. <laughs> But what's being done is a favor to a man who has earned himself no favors by becoming a Quaker. The Quakers are just about the strangest people available, maybe with the exception of the, the diggers in 17th century England, which is a pretty wild place religiously and politically anyway. But Quakers are famous in the, as of the 1650s, which is the period where the English Republic seems like it actually might survive in the mother country. They're famous for doing all kinds of very strange things, and including James Naylor riding into the city of Bristol on the back of a donkey like Jesus that is going to get him executed for blasphemy. Nonetheless, everybody thinks they're strange. Everyone agrees they're strange. They interrupt church services by screaming, at the minister when he's trying to give the sermon, and they're called Quakers because of their ecstatic, they might even look Pentecostal or charismatic to us today, their ecstatic manner of worship. The Quakers are very successful in securing a couple of high-profile converts that will help them, and Penn is the most prominent of them all. Of course, raised in the Church of England, as his father had been, he became a Quaker by conviction, under a traveling missionary on one of it that came to one of his family's estates in Ireland. So this is a very well-connected, very wealthy young man, and he becomes a Quaker. Now, he will suffer for it. His conviction is certainly not insincere. He will be imprisoned for it. He will think very deeply about being a Quaker. His Peaceful Fruits of Solitude, philosophical tract, theological tract is very interesting to read. But... Rather than being a leader, necessarily, in a local meeting, or, a, or what's that's called a monthly meeting, or a yearly meeting, which is a larger grouping, in the British Isles somewhere, and not turning into a traveling missionary, as there were so many of, both male and female among the Quakers, he instead decides to turn his hand to securing a place for the Quakers to be free. This is a story that is not really unique in American history. In fact, it will simply be repeated over and over and over again, is a desire to go somewhere and and to be left alone there and within that space to exercise sovereignty so that you can ensure that you will not be somehow suppressed or oppressed later on. It had already been done in some measure in Rhode Island and Providence plantations, which are originally separate colonies, now just called the state of Rhode Island. By Roger Williams, earlier on as an outgrowth of the colonies in Massachusetts, Penn's colony is much, much larger. It's also adjacent to earlier, very halting attempts called East Jersey and West Jersey. So New Jersey, what's now New Jersey, was not split sort of north and south like it is today in people's minds. It was split in half, although that was largely still north and south because it runs north and south. And those, those colonies were not exactly entirely controlled by Quakers, but Quakers were safe there. So there were Quakers already in what we would call the Delaware Valley before Penn gets to the New World in the 1680s. When he does get to the New World, what he intends to have is a place where people can practice what we would call now religious liberty, what in the 17th century was really a very strange thing. So just compare it, for example, to what a few years after the founding of Pennsylvania will take place in the mother country. After the glorious revolution in 1688 that brings a thoroughly Protestant monarchy, ensures its legitimacy and reality in England with the coming of William and Mary over from the Netherlands to replace the Catholic James II. At that point, there are acts of toleration passed. And what that's going to give people who are not what we would call Anglicans, what are called church members, right, in English, jurisprudence, what that's going to give non-Anglicans in England is simply the right to go to church. That's it. They don't have political rights because if you give them political rights, then their politics are going to align with their religion. And their religious desires, the desires of Catholics, say, for a Catholic monarch to come back, or the desire of certain Anglicans, high church Anglicans, for a Catholic monarch to come back, but also the desires of what are called dissenters or nonconformists, which is Protestant but not Anglican, for some other frame of government, which had been experimented with for 20-some years in the middle of that century, they might just want all that stuff back and then we're plunged back into revolution or we're plunged back into a Catholic monarchy. And so the Reformation is endangered and there's all kinds of considerations. So, yeah, you can go to church, but there are restrictions on what your church looks like. There are restrictions on how many of your kinds of a church someone could build. And you don't have political rights. You can't vote. doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what a great upstanding citizen you are. You cannot vote. So... There's a union here between politics and religion, or certainly a, a yoke, if it's, they're not identical. There is a yoking of politics with religion that is very normal. And what is meant by the concept of toleration is that we will not necessarily allow you to control our polity, but we won't drive you out or kill you. It's a resolution, and we've mentioned this many times over, To the biggest problem of Europe, certainly after the Reformation, and in some cases before, which is how do you deal with the fact that there's only one God, but that people think very different things about him and want to go on living next to each other? What do you do about that? You could have wars of religion. You could decimate Germany in the 30 years war earlier in that century. And although England was not involved in the 30 Years War. Many, many, many Englishmen and Scotsmen and Irishmen were in a mercenary or volunteer capacity, usually for a Protestant army of some kind. So everyone was trying to figure out how do we have differing opinions about religion without killing each other. And that was the solution adopted in the mother country, and prevalent therefore also with varying degrees of severity in almost all the other colonies. So In Massachusetts, you have a state church, and in Connecticut, which we'll mention later, you have a state church. And in Virginia, you have a state church, and in Maryland, you have a state church, which is actually the Church of England by then, and on and on. And where you don't have a state church, you have severe social dominance of one group or another, generally what we would call Anglicans. So Pennsylvania is pretty strange, (laughs) because in Pennsylvania, politics and religion are unyoked from each other, theoretically. And the theoretically part is really the catch here because what William Penn is going to allow you to do if you move to Pennsylvania is that you can practice your religion undisturbed. Now, that's going to attract a lot of strange people. <laughs> so it's sort of helpful if some of the stereotypes that people have today about California, maybe, or if you think of Sedona in Arizona, if you've ever been there, or other sort of odd, you know, where all the fruits and nuts converge kinds of places. Religiously speaking, that's that's Pennsylvania in colonial times. It attracts almost any strange idea or sect that you could possibly think of. So in the Society of the Woman in the Wilderness, a group of celibate men who live in caves along the banks of the Wissahickon in what's now the city of Philadelphia, you have Lutheran mystics, including Johannes Kelpius. You have In addition to English-speaking Quakers, you also have Dutch Quakers who found what's called Germantown, which is now a section of Philadelphia. You also have Welsh-speaking Quakers settling what's now called the Welsh Tract in Montgomery County. And you have all kinds of people, particularly from the Rhineland, Swiss, Germans, Alsatians, Dutch, people that would just be called Dutch generically then but not today— Partly because Penn recruits them. Penn is looking for dissenters. He's looking for Anabaptists. He's looking for what will become, in a schism, about 10 years after the founding of Pennsylvania, the Amish. That's how they got there, partly because he recruited them and partly because he sent out agents to bring them in. Now, none of this is terribly insincere or unusual, He sincerely does believe in the concept, because he's a Quaker, that politics and religion have nothing to do with each other. Because religion is a conviction concerning eternal things, and politics is a way of handling present things, and it's messy enough when you're a pacifist trying to run a state or what's practically a country. Let's not mix things up even more than that. He's not insincere. He really does believe in freedom of religion or religious liberty or however you want to phrase it. It's also not unusual in that everyone who has a colony, whether it's a group of people or a single man, has to populate it somehow. That's how the colony is not going to become an albatross sitting around his neck. So In the case of for instance the massachusetts bay colony which is the much bigger sister much bigger younger sister to the plymouth colony that's the origin of the mayflower we talked about in the case of massachusetts that's an example where the investors in london are pretty hands off so in massachusetts they are essentially self-governing from the first whether they were supposed to be or not that's how it actually works out But the group is self-governing. It's not what's called a proprietary colony where a single man is given control somewhat like a prince or a king within that territory. Pennsylvania is a proprietary colony. So in order for this not to be an enormous burden financially, personally, morally, politically to Penn and his descendants, they'll have to make it pay. The way that they're going to do that is by charging quit rents. So you get a title to this or that part of Pennsylvania, but you owe a certain, essentially a tax every year directly to the Penn family. So the more people you bring in, the better off the Penn family is. So he's trying to recruit people. Well, who wants to go to such a place? Lots of different people, but the major numbers are devoted mostly to three groups. And this is where whenever you're talking about demographics, whether it's then or today or in the future, you always have to think proportionally. If you just say, well, there, okay, but there, there was, you know, a, a Chinese guy present in colonial Pennsylvania. I don't know that. There probably wasn't. One guy doesn't matter as much as 50,000 guys. So proportions always matter here. And Pennsylvania is going to be unusual in the mixture that they have. Your main three groups to start out with are going to be English Quakers. They're going to settle in and around Philadelphia, which is a city with pretensions and aspirations we'll talk about later on. And when they do that, they are going to compose not only the main original middle class, but also the main original upper class, such as Quakers could have an upper class So it's not an upper class of great display, but it is an upper class. It is a governing class, and that's going to be centered in and on and around Philadelphia. So English Quakers will at first compose a significant percentage of the population, and they will throughout the colonial history of Pennsylvania compose the majority of the governing population. That is the population that has power, and that's what's going to matter so much for the story. The second group are what are beginning to be called the Scotch or are sometimes called the Irish, but they're not Irish like Irish Roman Catholics or Irish like I love St. Patrick's Day. They don't like Saint's Days because they're Presbyterians and ethnically speaking, they're Scottish. They usually come from what's called the border, which is the land border between Scotland and England, although a handful are Highlanders, most are Lowlanders, so they speak English. And they are both very, very poor and very, very prolific. So their excess population is gonna be drained off in some direction by the burgeoning British Empire for the next 200 to 300 years. The first place that they're sent in large numbers and that they are willing to go in large numbers is to what we now think of as Northern Ireland. The reason Ireland has a significant Protestant population is because of this, what are, what get called the Scotch-Irish. They're going to be poor and prolific also in Ireland, so significant numbers of them will come both from Ireland and from Scotland into the New World, and they will generally go farthest west fastest. So they will not center in and around Philadelphia or in the Carolinas. They will not center in and around the coast or in Virginia. They will move quickly into what will later be called Appalachia. Appalachia is what it is because of them, even down to today. They profess a very different religion than the Quakers. Their Presbyterianism is of a kind, as all Presbyterianism was in the 17th and early 18th century. It's very nationalistic, what we would now call Christian nationalistic. And that traces back to their history with their understanding of why Britain had not been blessed with thoroughly Protestant, thoroughly Reformed monarchs throughout her history, and that was because Britain had not sworn allegiance, Britain being mostly Scotland and England in their thinking, although also Ireland eventually, had not sworn allegiance to King Jesus. So they will will fight, they say, for crown and for covenant, and that is Jesus's royal rights and the covenant that he desires every nation to make with him in the western part of Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is about an hour and a half west of Philadelphia where your Quakers would be headquartered, the Scotch-Irish, in fact, swear in the 1740s an oath of allegiance on behalf of the American colonies to King Jesus, dedicating themselves, almost like Roman Catholics sometimes dedicate a country to the Virgin Mary or to Mary appearing at Fatima or the Sacred Heart of Jesus, right? They dedicate the United States, as Scotland and Ireland and England at various times had been dedicated in the previous century to King Jesus and and devote themselves to a political program that will reclaim his royal rights over these colonies, which are governed by the ungodly so often. The Scotch-Irish will therefore compose the vast majority of what will come to be called in Pennsylvania politics the country party. That's an importation into America of an old English distinction between the court party, the people in and around London, very comfortable with the reigning monarch and, and looking for his favor and trying to further his interests, in the country party, which has different interests because it's distant from London and doesn't really necessarily need the king to do everything. It doesn't want to give him much, if any, money. That same dynamic will be replicated over and over and over again in history almost anywhere. Pennsylvania imported even the very terms so that the court party are the supporters of the Penn family. They're going to be largely Quaker, but with this third group that we'll talk about in a second. And the country party will be largely Scotch-Irish. The third group is really important here because you begin to get a dynamic in And this is all about proportions because there were Huguenots that we talked about in New Amsterdam and there were Huguenots, that is French Protestants, in South Carolina. The proportions here are what matters. There's a rather famous letter by Benjamin Franklin from several decades before our revolution where he is complaining about what he calls Palatine Boers, B-O-O-R-S. Palatine meaning coming from the Rhineland, from what's called the Palatinate, it's a certain polity that a lot of what will come to be called Pennsylvania Germans, or what are called Dutch, because in the 18th century, everyone who spoke something that was sort of Germanic was called Dutch by English speakers. The Pennsylvania Dutch or Pennsylvania Germans will come in proportionately enormous numbers. Now, they also go to Virginia, and some go to New York, especially in the Mohawk Valley and the Schoharie Valley, But in Pennsylvania, they will compose a large population unto their own, settling the land roughly between where the Quakers are and where the Scotch-Irish are. So not really in the mountains, but definitely not in the city. And in a pattern that you'll see replicated also in the 19th century when we get there with the vastly larger and ultimately much more important, substantial German immigration, largely to the Midwest and the Great Plains, places that Anglos will farm and then move on or farm and then go into some kind of mercantile venture or farm and then go off and fight a war and get some new lands and then go there, Germans will buy a farm and stay. (laughs) And they'll pass it down and they'll pass it on. This is the dynamic that even goes on today in those parts of Pennsylvania that you would call the the Pennsylvania Dutch heartland or what's called in Pennsylvania Dutch the Deutsche is that they will come to occupy progressively more and more and more land. This is even true for the Amish today because they get land and then they stay there. And then when they absolutely can't fit everyone on that land, then they form new colonies. And that's how different parts of even some of your states that you don't think of as particularly Amish and certainly not Pennsylvanian like Arkansas or Kentucky or Colorado all have Amish colonies at this point And they will hold that land as long as they possibly can. This group is, begins initially recruited by William Penn, and so it begins as Quakers and sort of odd German Baptistic groups like the Mennonites, which will split into Mennonites and Amish in the 1690s, but it eventually becomes overwhelmingly simply German. And so you get a, the major distinction here is what are called Church Dutch or Fancy Dutch and then Plain Dutch or Meeting House Dutch. Plain Dutch or Meeting House Dutch are, for all intents and purposes, the Mennonites and the Amish. Of course, as you know, I can probably go into massive detail about that, that no one else, literally nobody else listening to this is interested in. So let's just say they're Mennonites and Amish. They're only ever going to compose about 10% of the Pennsylvania German population. 90% are going to be Lutheran or Reformed. This is going to be particularly interesting for many listeners who are Lutherans themselves today, Because certain patterns of existing as well as relating to political issues are already there with the Pennsylvania Germans. You don't need to wait for 19th century German immigration or the modern Missouri Senate or Wisconsin Senate to see these things play out. It all happens over and over and over again. They're not necessarily religiously oppressed. So already you have people coming because immigration is essentially open although there's some recruitment and some preference, but it's essentially open, people coming looking simply for material improvement. They bring with them a very different religious milieu than an Englishman has, where an Englishman, certainly after the Civil War, has all kinds of options, as William Penn himself had options, right, and chose one of them, maybe perhaps the strangest. They're not necessarily going to change their options i mean they they were lutheran or they were reformed in the rhineland and they come over and they're lutheran or they're reformed and the differences between those two churches are relatively small enough that they'll usually share a church building until such time as the congregations can build separate buildings so that even today in pennsylvania but also areas settled by the same people like western maryland or parts of upstate new york or the shenandoah valley in virginia is that in rural areas there will still be one building with a Lutheran service and a Reform service, respectively. They're going to come in such numbers that they will compose at least a third, if not more, of the population by the Revolution. Here's what's so odd about that, and so unusual in that time, but not in ours. They don't really learn English except some of their elites, such as their clergymen and most prominent businessmen. And they don't want to. They speak almost entirely forms of German called Low German that will eventually meld into their own dialect that has relatives in the Rhineland but is its own thing called Pennsylvania Dutch. And in church, they will use High German. They'll read out of the Luther Bible, whether they're Amish or Lutheran or whatever else. And they sort of live in their own world, and that's what they want. That's what they want. They don't want enormous amounts of power. And they will, from the first, exercise less power than their numbers probably entitle them to. So in this way, even in Pennsylvania, they're the total opposite of what we would call today Episcopalians or Anglicans. Because although that group is never, never, ever numerically important in almost any of the colonies... It still ends up running many of the colonies, even where, unlike, say, Virginia, the numbers are insubstantial. The Lutherans and the Reformed, not to speak of the Mennonites or the Amish who don't participate in political affairs at this time, they vote today, but they didn't then, don't want to participate. They want to farm or they want to run their blacksmithing business or do whatever, but they just want to be left alone. This is what a scholar whom I've referenced before, Stephen Nold, who has studied these folks in, particularly in a rebellion that we'll talk about after the revolution called Fry's Rebellion. This is what he describes as peasant republicanism. By republicanism, he means a certain degree of equality in the community, largely economic equality because fortunes are not gonna be vastly different on, the same, on roughly the same land in basically the same county among a people group. So the fortunes are not going to be the massive differences that you get between white planters and white indentured servants in South Carolina. So there's relative equality, and it's a peasant republicanism because he says what's really important when you get an immigrant group, especially one that is uninterested in assimilation, is that they will just maintain whatever political realities and settings they had when they came over because they're not really assimilated. This is the first place, if we haven't said it before, that we have to just get rid of the idea, especially since it was put forth by a Jewish man who never even came to America named Israel Zangwill, that America is a melting pot. (laughs) They're not getting melted down they're not changing and so their republicanism their sense of how government functions and their their relative attachment to equality although general disinterest in what's happening far away from them their peasant republicanism is because they were peasants in the holy roman empire where they came from they had no prospect for advancement and they had nowhere to go and they just wanted to farm and they came to the new world and they just wanted to farm so their prospects were materially different but not politically, or if they were politically different, if they could have been someone else, they didn't want to be. Now, this is where proportion always matters. Yeah, there are Pennsylvania Germans who seek and obtain power, not least the apostle of the Pennsylvania Lutherans, Henry Melchior, Muhlenberg, and certainly his sons, one of whom is a revolutionary general, and then another who is the first speaker of the House of Representatives, Yeah, there are exceptions. Exceptions don't matter that much when you're looking for patterns in history. Predominances, proportions, general tendencies are what you're looking for to understand what's happening. And as a general tendency, this group, which composes almost a third of the population, participates in its political and military fortunes, almost not at all. Here's why that matters so much for everybody else. Number one... Ben Franklin feels like an alien in his own city of Philadelphia. Now he himself came from Boston, but you know if you want to allow that, the point still stands. Philadelphia is an English colonial city, as is Boston, but all around him he hears German, so he feels like he's not even at home anymore. That's why he complains about the Palatine Boers, meaning both their poor manners and their general attachment to farming. Boers from the German and Old English word for farming boa. So that's one thing, is that they live almost as aliens in the midst of everyone else. That will gradually change over time, but it persists to a significant degree today in that the counties where they are most densely settled are still distinctive in many, many ways. As they spread out across the rest of the Commonwealth, and some of them move west with the Scotch-Irish, they will be assimilated. And so... This is where Pennsylvania is a, is a lot like New York with its Dutch population in that, although there are holdouts, and there are a lot more holdouts in Pennsylvania because the population of them is so much bigger than in New York, relative to the New York Dutch, there are m- many, too, who are assimilated, and those names go on to become familiar as American names, right, in the same way that Roosevelt is an American name, but it was a Dutch name before that. Names like Rockefeller or Wharton, which is an anglicized version of a German name. All of those kinds of names are Pennsylvania German names, and those are families that were assimilated in one or more ways, usually linguistically first and then religiously later, into Anglo-American ways of doing things. That's part of what you can describe in the case of America as our ethnogenesis, our beginning as not just a country or a place, but as a distinctive people, a people that are European descended, but not entirely sourced from one European country, but overwhelmingly English. Again, proportions matter here. Most Americans don't really think that way, and this is probably part of the reason that most report their their ethnicity on the census today as German is because most Americans are not very aware of quite how English they are, not to speak of the language they speak every day. So that's number one, is that assimilation does happen, especially when the group is scattered as they move farther west, generally speaking, even in Pennsylvania, let alone anywhere else. But also, when they don't get scattered, they compose their own group and they keep their own ways. They keep to themselves, most of all. Number two is that they will form a very large, indistinct block in every single political decision that anyone has to make. They're almost like the original unaffiliated voters. No one quite knows what they think and no one quite knows what they'll do if you do X or Y or Z. And this is a problem that's going to continue from what we'll narrate shortly about Pennsylvania's frontier. This is a problem that's going to be replicated over and over again into and including the revolution, where they will not sign up in anything like proportional numbers to fight for American independence, but they won't be loyalists either. They're just indifferent. Leave us alone. If that sounds appealing to you, think about number three. They're generally unassimilated. They're a large block. And number three... They have relatively little say in what happens to them because they're not in the room. What's going to happen to them is that they will generally have decisions made for them in various ways, whether it's to whom they pay taxes or how the Penn family gets to relate to the colony, especially after the founder, the framer, dies and his sons all revert to Anglicanism, (laughs) thereby leaving a Quaker colony governed by formerly Quaker Anglicans. The Pennsylvania Germans will form a large block, in fact, an increasingly large block as time passes, with substantial material wealth and substantial success, but they will not obtain much of a say in their own self-government. This will lead, throughout Pennsylvania's history, to them just being mocked, despite their size in the population. So the fact that there are a lot of them Certainly proportionally, there are a ton of them, and they're self-aware and can be spotted by their language and, and sometimes by their surname. Nonetheless, it won't really matter. The Pennsylvania Dutch will serve throughout most of Pennsylvania history as figureheads. So if you want a governor, you can easily control. Go find a Dutchman, and everyone will know proverbially in Pennsylvania that he's just a dumb Dutchman anyway. So this is tragic not only for everyone else but also for the group itself when it chooses not to participate in the ways that power actually operate in that commonwealth. Now that you know the three groups, let's talk about how they interact in what is probably the salient political problem of Pennsylvania's entire colonial history, and that is the frontier The frontier is, of course, at one point the boundaries of the city of Philadelphia, which is founded, named after a city in the book of Revelation by William Penn because of his hopes that here in the new world, a millennial age will come in. Millennial hopes, the hope for a change in mankind and the return of Jesus Christ are all over the founding of Pennsylvania and not only among the Quakers. At the borders of Philadelphia are relatively sparse Indian tribes, usually called the Delaware, but also the Susquehannocks a little farther to the west. They're pretty sparse, partly because a lot of Pennsylvania had been decimated by biological problems, by epidemics, as a lot of the East Coast had uh, just prior to white settlement, but also because Pennsylvania had Been largely, especially in its central and western portions, under the control of what would come to be called the Iroquois or the Iroquois Confederacy, a group of tribes from upstate New York that projected power in lots of different directions. They're sort of the the Comanches of the East, very commanding and widespread and feared. So a lot of Pennsylvania is, relatively speaking, certainly compared to New England and certainly compared to the American West later on has very few Indians in it. The ones that are, the Quakers decide to adopt a kind of unusual policy toward them, not least because the Quakers are pacifists. And that is not just that they will pay them for their land. That's actually pretty common in the history of Americans with American Indians. Not only will they pay them for their land, but they also will refuse to fight them. You can get away with that within about a hundred miles of Philadelphia. After that point, you're going to encounter Iroquois, or you're going to encounter other tribes, the Shawnee, and what's now the Pittsburgh area, who have a different idea about how to relate to you. You're not overwhelming them with your numbers, and they don't necessarily want you to stay here. It's what you might think of as the Indian problem that first gives rise to an enormous division between elites and commoners. Proportionally, Quakers will end up being a very, very, very small percentage of Pennsylvania's population. So that with the exception of a couple of townships, which are local government areas, usually pretty rural in Pennsylvania's frame of government down to today... With the exception of a couple townships in the Philadelphia area and certain neighborhoods in Philadelphia, they will not compose anything like a majority anywhere. And the farther and farther away you go from the Philadelphia area, the less and less and less they matter. And the more Indians you'll find, and very often the more powerful and hostile those Indians will be, very often with backing from French authorities trying to project their own power southward from Canada. This will result ultimately in what Americans call the French and Indian War, which is perhaps our largest Indian War in colonial times, unless you are from Massachusetts, in which case it's King Philip's War. But the French and Indian War is part of a larger global conflict in the middle of the 18th century between Britain and France and lots of other powers for reasons that don't entirely concern us here. Pennsylvania is the flashpoint for those wars, and it's the site both of George Washington's first military engagements, largely unsuccessful as a young man in the Virginia militia in the 1750s and 1760s. It's the site of a horrible defeat of a British general who was then trampled in the middle of the road where his body lays, and then of the shocking abandonment of Western Pennsylvania by French forces and the British triumph that will lead to the founding of a town named after their favorite prime minister called Pittsburgh, originally pronounced by the largely Scotch-Irish inhabitants Pittsburgh, like Edinburgh. Why does all that happen? It's because there is a frontier. We've said this before on the show. This really cannot be stressed enough, is that the existence of the frontier is central to understanding American history. Also, even in our time where it seems that there is not any such place left, even that matters. The idea that you could push somewhere else or go somewhere else or start some way else is important to a lot of us, I can tell because of the projects that many of us plan. Not just that you would do something new, but that you would do something entirely new not just that you would seek to found something, but that you would exit the history that you're in and get into something completely new, becoming almost as it were your own William Penn. It may be part of the reason that Americans are so open to all kinds of religious conversion. A decision that's usually made corporately or perhaps even ethnically or nationally for most people in history is made by us in the mode of William Penn, most often individually, with lots of consequences corporately and consequences perhaps for the rest of our lives, but we go ahead and make the call ourselves anyway. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm certainly not saying it's wonderful. I'm saying that it is. And the frontier is what gives you space to think that way, because you could go somewhere new and wild and strike out for yourselves. The frontier matters so much even when it's gone. Now, the Quakers don't concede that. Because the way that an elite forms is that it forms around a certain kind of stasis, a static set of realities that aren't going to change and from which you and yours are benefiting. So why would you change them? What incentive could you possibly have to change them? Of course, the answer is none. The Quakers, of course, don't want to fight. They don't want to go anywhere, and they don't need to. They're doing great running what is, by about 1750, America's largest city in the city of Philadelphia, and what will remain America's largest city until the early 19th century when Manhattan, not yet New York City, when Manhattan overtakes it. Philadelphia is huge and prosperous. That's why Ben Franklin goes there. It is, as it were, the the Bay Area and the greater Boston area and the New York area all rolled into one of colonial opportunity. So young men make their fortunes there. And that's why so much innovation is also occurring there. Scientific innovation, journalistic innovation, all kinds of change come to and through and from Philadelphia. The Quakers have a position because they are what are sometimes called the first purchasers, the first to engage in business with the Penn family, with the proprietors. The first purchasers have a position, however odd they may seem to the increasing numbers of Anglicans and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Reformed and people that don't even speak English. They have a position of prominence, and they're going to retain it. And so prominent Philadelphians, even down to today, what E. Digby Baltzell called proper Philadelphians, have noticeably Quaker surnames, just like if you have certain surnames, I can guarantee you at least one of your ancestors on your dad's side was Amish. It's the same way with the Quakers, except they occupy a totally different social position. Over time, many of them will become Anglicans, and so Anglicans will found what will be called in time not the College of Philadelphia as it originally is, but the University of Pennsylvania. But the Quakers themselves will not found colleges because it's a little proud to do so until the 19th century, when they are now thoroughly worldly by their ancestors' standards. So they're doing fine. In fact, many of them are doing great, and they don't believe in war And they suffer no consequences from anyone making war upon them because Delaware Indians gradually drift elsewhere. They are not in the Delaware Valley very much at all by that time. So the Quakers have no threat. But people whom they govern are very much threatened and very much land insecure. There are agreements made both between the province of Pennsylvania and the British government, the royal government itself, especially the royal army, and various Indian tribes that will limit white settlement west of the Appalachian Mountains for years. Now, people don't necessarily obey that because the hunger for land or the hunger for a place or the hunger for a fresh start begins to take on its own laws, doesn't it? and it pushes past, it feels like necessity, so it pushes past what is required. So people are living where they shouldn't, and some are evicted by the royal army. In addition to that, there are various threats posed by the French, but more often posed by various Indian tribes to isolated settlers. What's interesting about this history is that the most famous example of retaliation by whites for murders, scalpings, kidnappings is really all that's remembered if anyone knows anything about this particular Pennsylvania frontier at all, and that is the Paxton boys who attack Indians in the 1750s and march, not coincidentally, all the way to Philadelphia demanding redress and justice, and would you please defend your own people." Pennsylvania is therefore a really interesting and almost eerily modern version of (laughs) wide open immigration and disinterest in protecting at least some large proportion of the uh, native population. The native born Pennsylvanians, white Pennsylvanians are not being protected by their own government because their own government doesn't believe in fighting. This is also where you can see that severe ideological, or in this case, they're specifically religious, disagreements about things like the propriety of using firearms or the propriety of defending oneself are not joking matters. They matter a great deal. If you don't think I should defend myself against someone trying to kill me or my family, then it's eventually going to be really hard for us to live in the same country. The way that this gets resolved, with some assistance from Ben Franklin, who was raised as a Congregationalist and isn't a whole lot of anything by the 1750s, but he is on the side of the angels in this case, is that they say it is becoming unrealistic for us to continue having a province while refusing to defend our own province. So beginning with a sort of a palace coup Within the Pennsylvania Assembly, which meets in Philadelphia and is largely composed of people from the Philadelphia area, but sufficiently non Quaker by the 1750s that they can outvote the Quakers when military appropriations come up, Pennsylvania begins to defend itself and constructs a line of forts all up and down the mountains in order to make sure that these depredations against settlers do not continue. That doesn't ensure that scalping stop or kidnapping stop or that the Indian slave trade, which we'll talk about mostly when we talk about the American West because it's so large there even after the Civil War, that the Indian slave trade stops. It simply means that less damage is being done and in politics, that's often the best you can do. But that was preceded by decades of indifference and decades of scalpings and decades of kidnappings and decades of deaths and then portrayal by Quakers then and leftists now of anyone who sought to defend himself or his town as an evil racist. So the more things change, sometimes the more they really do stay the same. It didn't really have to be like this, and antagonism between elites and commoners, let's say, or the average man didn't have to be like this. There is a great contrast between Pennsylvania's frontier and its Indian wars and how part of its population is treated with indifference by another part, that would be the Germans treating the Scotch-Irish with indifference. They, in fact, probably don't even quite know what's going on with them because they don't speak the same language. And with a mixture of hostility and indifference by the, let's say, governing quarter or third of the population. It didn't have to be like this. New England is a great contrast, and since we already talked about Massachusetts and because it's a lot bigger than Connecticut, let's talk about Connecticut because it's easy to see things at very small levels. Connecticut was then and and is now a small place, although its population is several million, a couple million. It's a small place, and it's really an amalgamation of three different colonies, all founded with Puritan antecedents from Massachusetts Bay and or Plymouth. So these are the same people that you get in Massachusetts and eventually what becomes Maine and New Hampshire and then later on Vermont. So they're they're Yankees, if you will, although in Richard Bushman's terms, they're not yet Yankees, they're still Puritans. They still believe this stuff. It's an amalgamation of three colonies, but the dominant one is what's called the Connecticut Colony, headquartered at Hartford, which is therefore not coincidentally also the, had, is also the state capital of the modern state of Connecticut. Because it's a small place and because the Connecticut River is so important in its founding, and because it's founded not as a proprietary place where a family needs to make money, but as a place of corporate decision-making with an attached church, Connecticut does not quite have the closeness of, say, very early Plymouth Colony. You can live there if you're a Baptist, and you can live there if you're a Quaker, but very much like England, New England, and in this specific instance, Connecticut, are not going to give you any political rights. <laughs> so we're not going to have any fights over whether you're allowed to have a military. The congregational church is the state church. You don't have to belong, but if you don't, you don't really have political rights. You can go to church, That's, and we're not going to take your land from you, but, but that's it. Connecticut is governed, therefore, by a group of families somewhere between 9 and 15 in number, depending on who you're asking, whom you're reading, called usually the river gods because of their proximity and the link between their position and wealth and the Connecticut River. So all up and down the Connecticut River Valley, the river gods, the families, the trumbulls, and so on are going to be really important, and they're interconnected. And over time, they're intermarried. They're not just intermarried, they're also in government. Connecticut's nickname to this day is the Land of Steady Habits, and it's because from the first they pride themselves on both a a great degree of an old English concept of liberty, that is that you are not a slave to any man, combined with They think, for their form of government particularly, an unusual degree of stability through the time of the English Civil War and after, through the time of Pennsylvania's frontier wars and after, and through the proportionally much larger and more destructive of life, the Indian Wars, from which all of New England suffers throughout its colonial history, with at some points entire swathes of towns being destroyed, with their populations by Indian attacks. The river gods will alternate in office all the way down from the founding of Connecticut Colony in 1634 to the end of the state of Connecticut's state church under pressure from Democratic Republicans or what you might think of as Jeffersonians. We'll get to all that in 1818. That's a long time. And during all that time, you can see the Willis family and the Trumbull family and other families alternating in office and some men being something like Secretary of State for 60 years. And you might think that that would produce ossification, hardening. But what it produces instead is a class of people devoted to the good order of Connecticut. Now, they're not distinct From the people whom they govern. The people whom they govern are vastly proportionally, right? Vastly also Congregationalist Yankees. The people whom they govern also vastly share their religious and political, not just commitments or positions, but instincts. And this will last so long and be so stable and have so few problems in its internal functioning that it will simply come to be called this amalgamation of family and church and state. It will be called the standing order. And it will be one of the chief reasons Connecticut is called the, le- the land of steady habits. Elites might have to exist just as a result of the fact that people are not all the same. We are in this sa- in this sense, very much not created equal. But the river gods did not govern for their own sake, not even their own profit, where there's something much more noble about William Penn the framer than his sons who weren't even Quaker. It's not just that they weren't necessarily profiting from any of this It's that their instincts were the same as their own people's. And it is an irksome thing to be governed by people who not only don't share your positions, ideologically stated, which they may later, does this sound familiar, when they get elected, they might betray you, even though they said, they said they wouldn't because actually somebody else is paying for them. So it may be that if you're going to have a republic in the sense that John Adams talks about it, which is not a particular form of government, not even necessarily not a monarchy, but a republic, Adams says, is a government of laws and not of men, that you need men who are devoted to those laws, or let's say it this way, men who are devoted to that way of looking at and living in the world. And that's the very thing that Pennsylvania, in colonial times, so much, like itself now, but the United States of America now, didn't have. Everyone disagreed about so many things. They even had something like Seventh-day Adventists among the Germans, called Seventh-day German Baptists at Ephraim Cloister, who worshipped on Saturday and just did whatever they wanted on Sunday when everyone else was in church. I guess that's a frivolous example, but that's what it was like. They couldn't even agree on what to do at what time. The Sabbath is the Sabbath in Connecticut, and everything is quiet. And you don't have to go to the congregational church, but everyone who makes decisions does. There's something about that that not only seems natural or comes to us with ease and agreement between whom we marry and what we believe and what we do with our lives, But it also seems like it actually carries out the commandment to love your neighbor much better. That it would be much better if I didn't have to explain in a different language to my neighbor why he should care about my welfare and he can't even understand the words I'm using. It would be really nice if he just got what I was looking for and understood in a way intuitively what I needed because we were the same people. This is most easily visible in something that it was a very popular genre of literature in New England, but not in Pennsylvania. Interesting anywhere, and still somewhat interesting. And there's a modern novel about such ideas written by a Pennsylvanian from my hometown, Conrad Richter, who wrote several novels about the early American frontier. But in colonial times, Pennsylvanians didn't care about this stuff, and the Pennsylvania Germans definitely. The ones like Conrad Richter, they definitely didn't care. But the genre was really popular in New England, and it was what's called a captivity narrative, a captivity story. Because when you have a real clear sense of yourself, and when your government and your church are both looking to bring you back to that place that you have a very clear sense of yourself, that place that is home, then people are really interested in a story where you weren't able to be at home. So Mary Rowlinson is perhaps the most famous who is kidnapped and finally liberated. But there are so many others in New England's history, a place that was destroyed at various times by Indian wars in a way that Pennsylvania proportionally never suffered. Proportionally. But the reason it had such a power was because everyone was pulling in the same direction. They wanted the same things. Something that Pennsylvania never had, not in all its different regions and still doesn't today. But if you were lost to Connecticut or Massachusetts, they themselves would try to get you back to get you home. Some of our rootlessness today may be precisely because we are governed, and may even govern ourselves, not by trying to be home, but by trying to make money off the rent from the land, like the pens, I'm not sure. But the somewhat sad story of Pennsylvania is a lot more familiar than the way it must have felt to come back to a place not only where everybody spoke the same language, but by and large went to the same church, and the way that that church thought actually mattered for the way that the government functioned. The church and the government, they were different things. The minister was not the governor, but they were related, sometimes by blood. That might be just the sort of place among the river gods and under the standing order that you could actually go home. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College, a college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, you can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you, natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.